That's Matthew chapter 10, starting at verse 16. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Belzebul, how much more with them align those of his household? That's Acts chapter 16, starting at verse 16. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or to practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw the prison doors were open, he drew out his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. 
Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police, saying, Let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologised to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia, and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Now, um, the newspapers and news feeds over the last couple of weeks have been full of reports on the demise of Christianity in the United Kingdom. So Wednesday, not this last Wednesday, I think it was the Wednesday before, there was a, a survey amongst uh, the clergy done by the Times. Britain is no longer a Christian nation now, say the clergy. It was uh, trumpeted. And then articles, uh, that article produced a flurry of further people, pieces rather. Rod Liddell in the Sunday Times, he's a very penetrating writer, and this article was actually sent to me by a member of the congregation saying, this could provide great illustrations for sermons. Anyway, he wrote a pretty tough uh, article, which was very uh, thought-provoking. He blamed infantilizing messages and mission statements from church leaders that has jettisoned Christianity and replaced it with liberal grandstanding. And then the Independent carried an article that was sent through by, not by anybody in particular, it just came from our newsfeed, featuring two young members of our Sunday six o'clock congregation. Imagine my surprise when I opened this newsfeed, opened it up, and there was a picture of one of the young ladies um, from, from Sunday evening. It was a very good article. She had a lot of good stuff to say. Now, of course, it's hardly news. So in 2009, Dr. Callum Brown produced a very much trumpeted book, called The Death of Christian Britain, Understanding Secularization from 1800 to 2000s. For decades, you might say, centuries now, the formal nominal Christianity, which my generation grew up with, has been in decline. And I think I would say rightly so. Uh, Rod was right. The failure of church leaders across the nation to declare the Christian truth with courage and conviction has produced the death of Christian Britain. Uh, it's just the time to like to keep recycling this. But all over the rest of the world, the gospel is advancing apace. It's actually one of the modern phenomenons, uh, phenomena of uh, great note that in India and in Latin America, uh, in the United States as well, um, over in China uh, and Asia, the gospel is advancing apace. 
And so it makes me ask the question, what would it look like for the Christian gospel to take hold once again as it is declared and proclaimed anew in our now essentially pagan nation? We're the generation, I say we're the generation, I use that very broadly indeed, but you're the generation of the young ones with the gospel. What is it actually going to look like for this gospel to take hold once again? Uh, These Sunday afternoons, I think, will tell us I mean, it's immensely important because if we call ourselves Christian, this is what we're about, the advance of the Christian gospel. The people of Jesus' kingdom are a people of Jesus' word, and the people of Jesus' word are a people who will speak the good news of Jesus. And the key thesis for these six weeks, these first six weeks of the autumn term, is given to us in chapter 19, verse 20. I think I mentioned this last week. Acts is divided into blocks of material by the author. We hear that the word grew in chapter 6, verse 7. In chapter 9, verse 31, the church was built up. In chapter 12, verse 24, the word grew. In chapter 16, verse 5, the church was strengthened. And the block of material that we're looking at is summarized in chapter 19, and verse 20. I've um, printed out one of the translations of chapter 19, verse 20. So mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. And the thing that is new in this block of material in Acts is this mighty growing and triumph or prevailing of God's word. And that's what Luke, the author, wants us to see, that the word of God, when it is believed and proclaimed, advances mightily and triumphs. He's already told us in volume one, and you can see I've jotted down Luke chapter 24, verse 45 to 49, that Jesus, risen from the dead, demands that the Christian faith will spread and grow across the world. Repentance and forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed in Jesus' name to all nations. And so what does it actually look like for the word of God to advance unstoppably? What does it take? Uh, uh, Last week, we saw that Jesus is driving forward the advance of his word. Uh, We saw the Lord Jesus interrupt Paul's travel plans such that he couldn't go to one area and had to go to a new area. And when he got there, we saw the Lord Jesus open the heart or the mind of Lydia to pay attention to what Paul had to say. There are the first two things that we will see happening as the word of God advances mightily. He will direct plans and people will find themselves in a city they weren't expecting to be in. Remember, one of my friends going on a gap year or two to Australia, there he heard the Christian gospel. Imagine that, in Australia, of all places. It's lovely to have some Australians sitting with us in the back row there, but he became a Christian in Australia. The Lord directs our plans. The Lord opens hearts. The mighty triumph of Jesus' word. There's one other thing that I want us to note 
uh, from this passage this evening that we've just had read to us before we get into a kind of detailed, more detailed study of it. And that is, what is this word that is mightily growing and prevailing? What is this word? And I think Luke draws our attention to that in a couple of places. Do you see in verse 17, this slave girl with a spirit of divination followed Paul, crying out, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And then if you look across the page to where the jailer, verse 30, brings them out and says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. So that this word that is advancing across the world, that advances triumphantly wherever it is proclaimed clearly and courageously, is the word of salvation in Jesus' name. But the way acts work um, is that it is cumulative. And already in Acts, we have been told what Paul said when he talked about the word of salvation. So what I did in the introduction there is jot down to you a couple of notes from Paul's first major sermon back in Acts 13, where he spoke about a saviour, Jesus This message of salvation, the good news that God raised Jesus up from the dead, no more to return to corruption, that God raised him up. And then the conclusion of Paul's sermon, let it be known to you that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him, everyone who believes is freed from sin. So what we're talking about is the advance of the message of salvation. And what we're talking about is the advance of the message of salvation in Jesus' name. And what we're talking about is Jesus as Savior. And what we're talking about is Jesus who has been crucified and nailed to a cross to carry God's judgment at all our spiritual and moral failure. And what we're talking about is Jesus then being raised from the dead, never to die again and face corruption. And what we're talking about is Jesus enthroned, And what we're talking about is the eternal rule of Jesus and the coming judgment of Jesus and the possibility and opportunity for men and women to receive salvation, freedom from God's judgment because of our failure to live rightly in God's world. It is this triumph of the word of salvation in and through the name of Jesus that is the center of what we're thinking about over these six weeks. So the word that prevails and triumphs mightily, it's not primarily a word about social justice. It's not primarily a word about saving the planet, though actually if people turn to Jesus, they'll be much more responsible in the way they live. It's not primarily a a, a message about self-esteem or me being my best me, though if we turn to Jesus, we will actually be the best human we could be. Um, in Jesus' goodness. It's not primarily a message about health and wealth and so forth. It is primarily a message about salvation with God on the day of judgment through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what we're on about 
That's what Paul was talking about. And here, as Paul now begins to embed his ministry in this city of Philippi, we see first the slave girl and then the jailer acknowledging that it's a message of salvation. Well, how does Jesus advance this message? By opening the minds and hearts of men and women to pay attention to it. By changing travel plans so that people hear it this week. And it's quite surprising. He advances the message so that it triumphs and prevails in the midst of confusion and hostile opposition. He advances the message of Jesus' kingly rule and salvation frequently through supernatural intervention. He advances the message of salvation and the rule of King Jesus through resolute and principled determination on the part of the apostle. Three things that we do well to pay attention to as we think about the triumph of the message of salvation in the world. Confusion and hostile opposition. That is, it's very messy. And we shouldn't be naive and think it's kind of all going to be smooth and easy running. Let's have a look at verses 16 to 18, where we see the confusion. Then we'll come on to 19 to 24, where we see the opposition, the confusion. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her own as much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, Luke is there himself at this stage, crying out, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. This she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, and can you blame him, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. Now the spirit of divination literally in the original is the spirit of Python. In Greek culture Python was the snake associated with classical religion. It was said to guard the temple of Apollo. Apollo was said to manifest himself in the form of a python inspiring his devotees to declare messages, hence fortune telling. And here are Paul and Silas and that they're a point at the app the Jewish place of prayer, and they're further afield in the city of Philippi. And wherever they go, there's this girl who's coming behind them and shouting out. It's striking that whatever the spirit of Python was, it enabled her to recognize the mission of Paul and Silas. These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Uh, We see that across the Gospels, as Jesus breaks into the world, as his gospel is proclaimed, the forces of evil are absolutely clear about who he is and what he's come to do, often more clear than the people, even Jesus' disciples sometimes. Everywhere they go in Philippi, here is a slave girl stirring up, if you like, muddying the water, spreading confusion, causing real problems. Not at all. Surprising to find Paul frustrated by this constant confusion. And verse 18, Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ, come out of it. It came out that very hour. Now, once the Spirit has been dealt with, <coughs> Spirit of divination, then we have an altogether different problem. 
And I think we find the next piece quite hard to get to grips with because we don't at this stage in our history come from the kind of culture in which superstition and black magic is dominant. Um, As Christianity recedes in a country, so superstition increases. We've had centuries of Christian teaching, and so superstition isn't nearly as prevalent. But anyone from an African or animistic background will be able to associate with this. In such cultures, the witch doctor is a source of considerable income, and anyone with the priestly craft of manipulating events can make a fast buck. And the girl's owners immediately realize that her deliverance from this spirit means their financial loss. Just look at it. When her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas, dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they brought them to the magistrates, they said, look at this, these men are Jews and they're disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they'd inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them in prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. So they come to the magistrates. They state their case. But notice, not in economic terms. The issue is that they realize they're no longer going to be able to make money out of this girl. But when they come to the authorities, they don't say, oh, Paul freeing this girl from evil has been bad for our back pocket. Instead, they're extraordinarily clever. They maneuver for social advantage. They use labeling to heighten social boundaries, one person says. And Aaron described this as a kind of culture war. Look at the case they make. These men are Jews. They're disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us. Now, that neither of those accusations is true. Paul and Silas are not promoting Jewish religion. They're promoting the Christian faith. Nor are Paul and Silas advocating practices that are illegal for Roman citizens. Quite the opposite. They're not a threat to the state. They're not a threat to social cohesion. They're not a threat to anybody who loves truth and integrity, love and goodness. Quite the reverse. But these guys can sense that Their presence there is going to disrupt the status quo and rattle the kind of power dynamics. And so, seeing the damage the gospel is going to do to the cause of their pocket, they stir up opposition through false accusation. They present their charge in terms which appeal to the latent anti-Jewishness and civic pride of the people. And then verse 22 and 24 record the outcome. Paul and Silas are given a severe beating. They're put in the most secure cell. It's better than Wandsworth Prison. And for good measure, they're clapped in the stocks. Okay, so what do we learn? Well, we're going to see that the gospel does advance and triumph mightily. But it's a very confusing situation. False allegations are made, deliberate and unfair manipulation on the part of the authorities. And I think this, to a degree, challenges my naivety. 
I tend to think that the gospel is so wonderful, and it is, that all right-minded people accept it with open arms. Remember the first person I ever explained the Christian gospel to. I'd just become a Christian. He was my best mate, and I was coming back from becoming a Christian. I'd been up to say my granddad for a week or so, and I thought, I've got to explain the gospel to Jamie. And he didn't want any of it. Don't be naive, William. We're in a battle, William. There are real and deep-rooted vested interests in your office. There will be confusion and false allegation. In your school, there will be authorities and teachers with particular agendas that they want their agenda and particularly their way of life to prevail. You start up your Christian union and start speaking about the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, it's wonderful for the school. Who wouldn't want the gospel in a school? It'll produce pupils who are wanting to be recognizing the authorities, to work hard and be diligent, all these wonderful things that the gospel produces. And yet you suddenly find all these teachers having a go, not wanting the Christian, not allowing you to invite certain people to speak and so forth. Don't be naive, William. There are vested interests, William. Remember Jesus when he cast the demons out of the two demon-possessed men? They went into the pigs and the townspeople. What did they do? Isn't this wonderful? We've been liberated in this area. Praise the Lord. These two men have been restored. No, leave immediately. They begged Jesus to leave because it was impacting their back pocket. So you would think, wouldn't you, that in a company, in one of the businesses around here, for example, these big, big businesses that operate, they would long for the gospel because it will cause people to work hard and be diligent and to be honest and full of integrity. Ah, but there are vested interests. There are vested interests. I remember working um, in a school once. For six months. I only managed six months. I was uh, in between jobs and they asked if I'd come and help out in one way or another. And the headmaster and I used to meet quite regularly, not for disciplinary reasons, I hasten to add. But he said to me once, the, the school was a school of 800. They had a Christian union of around 100. It was an extraordinary period in the school's life. And he said to me once, you know, the Christian union is so impressive that if I had the choice between a senior boy in the Christian Union and another boy in the school, and everything else was equal, I would always appoint the boy from the Christian group to be head of school. And he, he, that headmaster became chair of the independent school's headmaster's assembly, whatever that is. Um, but you would think then every school would be welcoming the group. Oh, no, 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 no. There are vested interests. And in your companies, there'll be people, I don't know, in the LGBTQI area or whatever it happens to be, who want to try to use the diversity inclusion against the Christian union and get people banned from speaking there. Rico Tice, I mean, what a great guy Rico is with a clear message. Banned from speaking at various different companies around here because of the vested interests. Don't be naive, William. The gospel will advance and triumph mightily But there will be confusion, and there will be opposition. I mean, I think to myself, the Me Too campaign and so forth, Hollywood should welcome the gospel. Proper treatment of women by men, the establishment of 
marriage, stable society, without all the damage of divorce and broken families. Politicians should welcome the gospel. No, 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 no. Vested interests. Now, secondly, the truth of the Christian gospel prevails as a result of supernatural intervention here. Now, of course, we've already seen one example of God acting supernaturally, uh, and that was with uh, uh, Lydia last, uh, the, the travel plans of Paul last week. But here we have in verse 18, following the triumph of the word, verse 25 and 26. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Wouldn't want to be in prison with Paul, would you? Wouldn't get a good night's sleep. But anyway, let's leave that to one side. Suddenly, there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everybody's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, don't harm yourself, we're all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Now there are a number of ways of reading this. We could approach the earthquake with the eyes of a skeptic and simply discount it. One commentator A skeptical commentator describes this incident as being a, quote, nest of improbabilities. And you come across people like that, don't you? I don't think there is a God who rules his creation. It can't have happened. But hold on a moment. In every other area of Luke's writing, he is meticulous in the way he writes On a number of occasions, he uses material previously recorded by other authors. He always follows it with extraordinary care. There's no embellishment. He doesn't chop and change things to make a better story. It's not like the preacher or the raconteur who embellishes an illustration a little bit to get a laugh. Paul is a medical doctor. He knows how things work. He lives in the same world as us. He knew a dead body when he saw one. He knows dead bodies don't rise. And when you read other aspects of Luke's writing, did I say Paul was a medical doctor? I meant Luke is a medical doctor. When you read other aspects of Luke's writing, he records geography and meteorology and other historical and political events with great accuracy. Even in this account, his description of the process of the trial by the strategos the magistrate, in the agora, the marketplace, by the police. He gives them their proper technical name, which I can't pronounce for a moment. It's all exactly how things happened in the first century. So we could simply discount the earthquake and say, well, I don't believe those kind of things happen in this world. Therefore, there can't be a God who does these kind of things. Hold on a second. Or you could just say it's a coincidence. It just so happened at that point, at midnight, in just the right place, just the right thing happened. Well, even if you just think it was a coincidence, it's pretty impressive. But you come across people like that, the comet at the birth of Jesus, the wind that parted the Red Sea, the coma that enabled Lazarus to make, make it look like Jesus raised Lazarus. You know that sort of stuff. Oh, it's just a coincidence. But in this book of Acts, we find God acting over and over and over again, supernaturally, 
to ensure the advance of the gospel. Think of Peter in prison and the angel. Uh, Think of Paul on the road to um, Emmaus and his conversion. And so I think there's a challenge here as well. In the first point, am I just a bit naive? In this point, am I, do I really believe that God will act supernaturally for the advance of his gospel? Do I actually believe that? Please hear me right. I'm not suggesting we should expect earthquakes, angels, and visions before every breakfast. The normal way of God working is through his God-given laws and the norms of physics. It would be most strange for God to have set up his universe to operate according to a set of key principles and every five minutes to be there with his kind of, you know, um, probe sort of jumping in and changing things. Nonetheless, we shouldn't be surprised to find God divinely ordering events supernaturally to ensure the advance of the gospel, a nest of improbabilities, just a coincidence. Now, the man or woman of faith should be expecting God to work. And as I thought about this this week, you know, I can think of any number of occasions where God has worked. You could just say it's a coincidence, but I think of, uh, I mean, I kept a record of all my prayer requests through the first three or four years when I was rector of St. Helens back in the late 90s and early 2000s. And over and over again, I think of one particular staff appointment that it was just so evident that God overruled. Two, extraordinary advantage for the advance of the gospel. I won't tell you which one in case the individual gets a bit big-headed. We need to handle this with great care. You are not the Apostle Paul and nor am I, and we are not pioneering the advance of the Christian gospel for the first time into mainland Europe. The normal way will come to next week. But am I expecting God to work? Am I looking at every event that takes place and praying that God will work through it? Do I see every event of whatever sort at work, at school, in business as a means by which God is working for the advance of his gospel? Because here, the earthquake led to the breaking of the bonds and the jailer at the point of killing himself tells you something about the way jail systems worked. Wouldn't get so many escapees, would we, in the British prisons if it worked like that? And then the apostle preaching the gospel and the advance of the gospel through God's supernatural intervention. Finally, through resolute and principled determination. Did you notice all the way through, if you like, the entrepreneurial principled determination of the apostle Paul with the slave girl in the jail at night to the jailer? You know, if I was Paul my bonds are gone, I would be legging it and looking for the first delivery lorry to strap myself to the bottom of and take me out of the jail. But not Paul, he's there. And he says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. So there is a kind of entrepreneurial principle determination with the apostle. And you see it most clearly, I think, in verse 35. When it was day, the magistrate sent the police saying, let these men go. 
The jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. Paul said, but they've beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens. They've thrown us into prison, and do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. (laughs) What's going on there? Is Paul just a little bit difficult? Is he demanding his rights? Is he wanting to get one over on the people who beat him? I don't think so. I think Paul is using the laws of the established state in order to ensure the advance of the gospel. He's determined that others who follow in his wake won't be treated in the same way. It is, if you like, a demonstration that what he has done is not against the Roman law and therefore a vindication of the preaching of the gospel. And I think this is a vital lesson for us to learn. And I jotted down, I don't know if I put it on the, yes, I did. Um, Are we too soft? (laughs) Don't be a soft touch. By which I mean we need to be thinking carefully, what is the legal situation in my company, in my school, at the university? I mean, is it right or wrong for people to try and silence the Christian gospel? Is there a way in which, in the hospital, I can actually put it very clearly that it's absolutely right that the Christian gospel be proclaimed? And given my position... How can I maximize that public proclamation of the gospel and defense of the gospel using whatever the legal situation is that surrounds me? I've been thinking about this a lot, obviously, over the last few days. Happened to have a conversation with somebody this morning who is relatively senior in his company, and he has given up the time to become one of the two co Um, chairs of the company faith group. The company has got to have a faith group, diversity inclusion. I'm going to become chair of that. And, And you're supposed to make it possible for everybody to have their meetings, but nobody else wants to apart from the Christians. And so he's using that to make hay for the gospel. I think of another very senior businessman who was laying on meetings and talks for the whole company and advertising it across the whole company. And there was a big hoo-ha about it because he was advertising it across the company. And he showed me the letter he wrote because he earned the company a very, very great deal of money, suggesting that there was another company of a very similar sort just down the road and they have a much less negative view of the kind of work that he was seeking to do as he shared a Christian faith. In other words... I'll be off tomorrow. They backed down immediately. He used his position for the advance of the gospel. And he used the law of the diversity and inclusion and so forth similarly. And so don't be naive, William. That's my my first uh, correction to myself. Yeah, there's going to be opposition. You will face it as we seek. That's the gospel advances. Uh, Don't be unbelieving. God is at work in all these situations supernaturally to cause the advance of the gospel don't be a soft touch don't just roll over what's your motive 
but don't be a soft touch and use whatever the legal situation might be around you within your company and so forth to make it possible for the gospel to advance. It's the gospel of salvation that we're talking about. It will advance mightily, but this is how it takes place. Let me lead us in prayer. Thank you, Father, for this great encouragement. And as we consider the advance of the gospel across the globe, we thank you that you are driving this glorious message of salvation forward. And as we look out on our now essentially pagan country, we pray, Lord, that you would make us more and more like these early disciples, entrepreneurs with the gospel, looking for you to work supernaturally for the advance of the gospel and ready for whatever opposition there might be and not naive when it comes. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.